together as God's people uh, to worship our King, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And before our first song, let me read you some words uh, from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. It says this, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Well, we come together to worship this King, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King who reigns forevermore.
amazing to think, isn't it, that the, the King of Kings who we've just been singing about uh, is the one that was placed on a cross and who dies for our sins. Uh, and over the next couple of um, times in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to be uh, looking at Jesus on the cross uh, and seeing the King of Kings uh, being crucified. Uh, and as Jesus dies on the cross, Matthew uh, draws greatly from two uh, particular psalms uh, that prophesy what happens while he's on the cross. Uh, one is Psalm 22, and the other is Psalm 69. So this week, uh, we're going to look at the second of those psalms, uh, Psalm 69. So if you have a Bible, uh, please turn uh, to Psalm 69, uh, and uh, Morris is going to come uh, and read that for us. Psalm 69, with the director of music to the tune of lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I'm forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depth swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those you wound, and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime, do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving 
This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. This is God's word. Well, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we see in this psalm King David speak of his suffering, which is suffering that was echoed by King Jesus, who was despised and rejected, scorned, disgraced and shamed, and he did all of that for us. We thank you that Jesus is the King who has died for his people to bring us into his kingdom. And with David, we say, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Uh, we do thank you that we have been able in recent weeks to sing outside in our morning services. We thank you even, Lord, for the, the good weather that we've had. Uh, and we do pray uh, in the coming weeks that restrictions will be lifted that we can all freely again join our voices in song, praising your name for who you are and what you have done. We also ask, Lord, that you would be at work in our community as we pray, proclaim Christ's kingdom uh, in the places where you've placed us. We ask, Lord, that you would bring salvation to the young people and children who have been coming on Friday nights. We thank you that this week we had more children at Discoverers, uh, an answer to the prayers of your people. And we do ask that we will be able to hold the holiday club this year, and that it will be a time where we can share the gospel with the families uh, in the communities around us. We also take the time this evening, Heavenly Father, to pray for our families and our friends uh, who do not know Christ. Uh, so many of us have parents and children and siblings who do not know you and we so long for them to turn to King Jesus themselves. And so we take time this evening just to silently now uh, bring their names uh, before you. And we ask you for wisdom, Heavenly Father, as we seek to share the gospel with them. I specifically pray for the numbers in our fellowship who are facing difficulties in their families because of our belief in Jesus and in the truth of your word. For some of us, there is a choice between following Jesus and maintaining harmonious relationships with our families, even our own children. And so please help us to be both bold and compassionate, to speak with grace and with truth. Help us to follow Jesus in this, and in every area, help us to point them to Jesus, even when we fail and our families see us at our worst. May they know we are not saved because of our efforts or any kind of perfect behavior that we might have, but that we are saved by your grace, the same grace that they need as well. And so we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior. Amen.
But if you return in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 27, and this evening we're going to be uh, looking at verses 27 to uh, verse 44 of that chapter, Matthew 27, so turn with me there. Uh, So last week uh, we saw Jesus uh, tried by Pontius Pilate, and he was handed over to be crucified, and we pick up Matthew's account now at verse 27, so let's read uh, from there. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. 
When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is God's word. Well, I've entitled this message, Many a Truth is Said in Jest. You may recognize that phrase. It's a phrase that um, many people use. It actually comes uh, from uh, an author called Geoffrey Chaucer hundreds of years ago in Canterbury Tales. Uh, and the reason people use it is because uh, often people conceal truth inside a joke. Or sometimes, uh, despite the fact that something is a joke, it still contains a layer of truth. Now, I did uh, try and think of some examples of when this is used, but I realized that in doing so, I'd probably offend a whole lot of people in saying some of the examples, so I'm going to avoid those. Um, but you know what I mean, when people say a joke, oftentimes when the joke is towards somebody mocking them, uh, there is a certain layer of truth behind what they are saying. Now in one sense, what we have here in Matthew's Gospel is Matthew giving us the historical account of the death of Jesus, relaying the events that happened. The mockery faced by Jesus in this passage was par for the course for those who were going to be crucified. This is what happened to those undergoing execution by crucifixion. But all of the writers of the Gospels choose to include and exclude certain details in their historical records. And so it's worth asking, why does Matthew include these details here? And what he seems to be doing is showing us the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing on the cross through the words of those who are mocking him and abusing him. Jesus is mocked and abused by all the people that are around him. The soldiers, the passers-by, the Sanhedrin, even the rebels being crucified next to him. And as all of these groups mock him, they are all speaking truth. Their jokes are the Christian's confession. And through irony, which Matthew employs a lot throughout this section, we see three truths about Jesus. He reigns as king, he destroys the temple, and he saves others. So first of all, Jesus reigns as king. So in verse 27, notice how Jesus is taken to the praetorium, which was the official residence of the governor. It's like 10 Downing Street or, or Butte House in Edinburgh. It's where the governor lives. Uh, and a whole company of soldiers were there. So this was a lot of people. There were up to hundreds of people in a company of soldiers. And notice how this company of soldiers are all around Jesus. So the image here is of Jesus in the middle, and he is surrounded by this company of soldiers 
And so he is the center of their attention. And in verses 28 to 31, what they are doing is performing a mock coronation. The mockery of the soldiers towards a victim of crucifixion was always linked to the crime of which they were charged with. So with Jesus being charged with claiming to be a king, that is what they mock him for. So notice this mock coronation with me. Look at verse 28. They strip him of his clothes and they give him a scarlet robe. This was probably the robe of one of the soldiers or a spare one lying around. And they put it on Jesus as a mantle. Now a mantle, uh, for lack of a better uh, term, is like a cape. If you've seen a king or a a queen, they they wear effectively a a cape with, um, I guess, I've called them fluffy bits on the side. I'm thinking of our queen, uh, her coronation. You'll notice that. And it's what uh, they would wear. It's called the mantle. So they put a mantle on Jesus. Uh, Then in verse 29, we read how they crown him, put on his head a crown of thorns. So on uh, Roman coins, the emperor would have a wreath around their head as their crown. And here in this mock coronation, one is made out of thorns and pressed down on Jesus' head as his crown. So they've given him a mantle, they've crowned him, and then in verse 29 he's also given, notice, a staff, which was the scepter of a king placed in the king's right hand. And here they put the staff in the right hand of Jesus in this coronation. And then notice what they do in verse 29, they kneel in mock homage before him. Uh, Imagine this, there's a company of soldiers, hundreds of of men around Jesus, he's in the middle, and all of these people are bowing their knee to him in mock homage with the words, Hail, King of the Jews. They're saying, Look at him, look at this king that we have just given a coronation ceremony to. Uh, Hail, King of the Jews was what they would say. Um, to a a, a monarch, they would say, Hail Caesar. Uh, We would use something different. In our coronations, in our country, we say, Long live the king or long live the queen. And there's a song that I'm not going to sing that goes along with that. That's what they're doing here. It's a coronation ceremony using the charge that Jesus is charged with. And then in verse 30, they show what they think of this claim to kingship. They spit on Jesus. They hit him with the staff. Notice they do it again and again. And with a company of soldiers, it would have been over and over and over, hitting him with this staff that they'd just given him as a scepter. They're making a complete mockery of the claim to be king of the Jews. Well, with the coronation over in verse 31, they take off the robe. They give Jesus his own clothes back so that they can lead him away to crucify him. Uh, It's interesting to note here how Matthew, with just one sentence here and with one word in verse 35, omits what all of the New Testament writers do, which is any details about the physical pains of crucifixion. In part, this was because the readers would know exactly what crucifixion entails. It was a barbaric form of execution uh, where someone would die over a very long time in immense pain. But the gospel writers and the rest of the New Testament authors focus more on the meaning of the death of Jesus rather than on the physical pain itself. And part of that meaning is found in in verse 32. Look at that verse. It says, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Cyrene is in North Africa, and so Simon was likely a Jewish man who was in Jerusalem for the Passover. And this was a case of wrong place, wrong time. 
Uh, he wasn't doing this to be nice to Jesus. He was forced to carry the cross. Uh, what would have happened was that they would have to carry uh, the, the horizontal beam that they would be nailed to because the upright part of the cross would have already been placed in the ground where the execution was to take place. And Jesus, following his beatings, was too weak to carry the cross or too slow. And so we read that Simon was forced by the soldiers to carry it for him. Simon didn't volunteer for this. He was forced to do this job. Now, uh, we don't know if Simon became a Christian later on, but Mark, in his gospel, does give us details about his family. Uh, so it was, a, a, it, was, it was quite likely that, that Simon was a believer later on in the church. But the po- important point is this, that Simon points us to some truths of what is going on as this king of the Jews goes to his crucifixion. First, there is more irony here. As Simon carries the crossbeam, it looks like to the crowds that he is the one being condemned, doesn't it? And this is another picture of this substitution that we saw last week with Barabbas, but this time reversed. It's another reminder that Jesus doesn't deserve to be going to the cross. He doesn't deserve to die. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly still, Simon pictures that Jesus is a king that we follow by taking up our cross. Of course, our suffering is not the same as Jesus, but we are called as his people to follow in his footsteps. Well, verse 33 tells us that they came to Golgotha. Uh, Golgotha means place of the skull, probably because it looked like a skull, uh, but certainly it was, of course, a place of death. And that is, by the way, where we get the, in, the, the word Calvary from. Uh, Calva is the Latin word for skull. And so Calvary is the Latin name for the place where Jesus died. That's why we use the word Calvary in many of our songs, uh, and we speak of it and so forth. And at this place, in verse 34, Jesus is offered wine to drink mixed with gall. Now, some say that gall was a narcotic, and it was offered to Jesus to give him some pain relief, uh, and he rejected it because he wanted to have all of his senses when he died. Now, I think that's unlikely, actually, because having read what we've seen so far with the soldiers, I don't think that they would be quite so nice. More likely, this was more mockery. Gall was bitter. It would make the wine taste disgusting. It's the equivalent of what, in fact, I was going to say what some of us might do. Most of you don't do this. But like putting salt in someone's water for a joke, uh, that kind of thing. And they drink it and then they spit it out because it's horrible. That's the kind of thing that I I believe was going on here. It seemed as though they were offering Jesus some relief. But actually, they were giving him something that he would just have to spit out. It was horrible. But there is more going on here than meets the eye. Because as we see this week and next time, Jesus being mocked and crucified, he experiences what the greatest king of the Jews, David, wrote about. In the events of the crucifixion, There are two Psalms which speak clearly of what's going on. Psalm 69 is more minor, and Psalm 22 is major. And in Psalm 69, verses 19 to 21, we read what is being played out before us here. So let me read you these words. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Do you see there exactly what Jesus is undergoing here? 
The mockery that Jesus receives here is the mockery written about and experienced by none other than the king of the Jews. You see? So this is, this, this is fulfillment of the experience of Israel's king. And this continues uh, as we go on. In verse 35, it says, When they had crucified him, so they, they, they've here nailed him to the cross, the nails going through his wrists and his ankles or his hands and his feet, and people were executed naked to publicly humiliate them further. And the clothes of the victim became the property of the executioners. This was normal practice. The, the clothing was probably an inner and outer garment, a belt and some sandals. And they were given out to the soldiers by drawing lots. Again, normal practice in an execution like this. But this speaks of the experience of the king of the Jews. Because David wrote these words in Psalm 22. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It's amazing to think that this was written hundreds of years before even crucifixion was happening. And here David writes, as the king of the Jews, of his hands and feet being pierced, and of his clothes being distributed by casting lots. David speaks of, of people staring and gloating. This is the experience of the king of the Jews. The Roman soldiers mock Jesus. They think that they're just getting some free clothing. But all the time, they are unwittingly fulfilling the scriptures that show Jesus is the very king of the Jews they are mocking him as. You see? Well, in verses 30, uh, verse 36, we read that they keep watch. That's going to be important next time uh, we look at Matthew's gospel because we'll see that some of the soldiers, uh, along with the centurion, as they're watching, fully understand what is going on and who Jesus is. But what they see right away as they keep watch is the sign above Jesus' head. So when someone was crucified, uh, the charge was displayed above them so that as people walked by, and crucifixion was always a public spectacle, they could see the reason for the execution so that they would be deterred from doing the same thing. And the sign above Jesus' head was this. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Or, another way of understanding it, this is God saves. That's the meaning of the name Jesus, the King of the Jews. Do you see the irony in all of this? These Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus and they are speaking the truth in their mockery without even knowing it. Matthew in his gospel has shown us that Jesus is the king of the Jews. In the very first words of his gospel we read, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David was the king of the people of Abraham, the Jews. Jesus descends from these men. We saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in Matthew 21, showing that he is the king of the Jews. And over Jesus' head is the truth that Matthew has been showing us. And furthermore, the right of Jesus to this title of king of the Jews is shown even by the way that he is treated like King David had written about. And most ironically of all, in their mock coronation, these soldiers are acting out exactly what every other human being throughout history will all do in the future. They bow the knee to Jesus 
and they acknowledge him as king. Or, in the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, the King of the Jews, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, including all of those soldiers and all of those passers-by and all of the Sanhedrin and the rebels alongside him, and you and me and every person in history will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is called the King of the Jews, but in the New Testament we see that as true as that is, that is not all. He's not only the King of the Jews. In Revelation 19, we read there how Jesus has a different scarlet robe, a robe that's scarlet because it's dipped in blood, with a fuller description of who he's king over, because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, we read, on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The mockery of the soldiers is the confession of the saints. Many a truth is said in jest, right? Well, being king is not all that Jesus is mocked for. The soldiers mock him for being king, but the passers-by mock the fact that Jesus destroys the temple. So in verse 38, the king of the Jews is being crucified alongside two rebels, one on his right, one on his left. Uh, Jesus is, as Isaiah 53 prophesies, numbered with the transgressors here. And this detail of him being crucified alongside these two transgressors uh, shows that he does not look like the king he is charged with being, and he does not look like he is able to do some of the things that he is claimed to have said he is able to do. Things like destroying the temple. And the people passing by see this. They see Jesus there. And in verse 39, those passers-by shake their heads and hurl insults at him. Uh, shaking the head was then, as is now, uh, a gesture of derision or disapproval. And hurling insults at him it isn't just them uh, kind of shaking their head with a tut-tut, but a, a, a hurling of abuse, a, a throwing words at him that are, are, are horrible and despicable in what they are saying. And the nature of these insults is described in verse 40. Look at what they say to Jesus. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Well, at the trial of the Sanhedrin in chapter 26, witnesses were found who accused Jesus of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And the accusation had obviously spread. This may have happened in verse 20 of this chapter when the chief priests were persuading the crowd to have him crucified. And on that day, on the day of the crucifixion, the temple, not that far away, was still standing strong. People were flocking to it during the Passover. And so there's this temple standing strong, and there is Jesus hanging on a cross between two criminals. The man who said he was going to destroy the temple doesn't look up to much, does he? He's on a cross in between two criminals. He's helpless. He's pathetic. His current situation makes a mockery both of that claim and the claim of, what it, of him being king above his head. He's no threat to the temple here. And the people are letting him know. If Jesus could destroy the temple, well then he could save himself, couldn't he? If he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, well then Jesus is the Son of God. That he was claiming to be the Son of God was highlighted by Caiaphas 
in chapter 26 and verse 63. Caiaphas asked Jesus about the temple, but then when Jesus was silent about him destroying it, Caiaphas asked him if he was the son of God. That means there is a link between destroying the temple and raising it in three days and being that son of God. But notice here how the mockery of the crowd also echoes the temptation of the devil in Matthew chapter 4. There, in that chapter, the devil was trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross and go a different way of, 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 of bringing salvation. And as the devil tempted Jesus, the devil started two times with these words. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. And so there is in this mockery also, I believe, a temptation being thrown at Jesus. Don't stay there, Jesus. Come down from the cross. Bring, bring salvation another way. But Jesus won't come down because in dying on the cross, he is the once and for all sacrifice for sin that eliminates the need for the temple. The temple was the place where God dwelt and was the place to go for sacrifices for sin. And the irony is that Jesus is the temple the dwelling place of God that is destroyed as a sacrifice and will be raised on the third day. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus is the one who will be raised, whereas the temple standing strong on this day will be destroyed. And Jesus alone can be this sacrifice if he stays on the cross. And so he does not come down despite the temptation to. Again, the spectator's mockery is the saint's confession. We believe that in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead dwells. And we believe that Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Many a truth is said in jest. So Jesus reigns as king and Jesus destroys the temple. And the final mockery comes not from the soldiers or the passers-by, but this time from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. Notice in verse 41 how all the constituent parts of the Sanhedrin are mentioned, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. So Jesus is rejected and mocked by the whole Jewish religious establishment. And they mock Jesus because Jesus saves others. That's what they say in verse 42. Their mockery begins with, notice that, he saved others. Now it is interesting to note that people saying this are Jesus' enemies. And his enemies never doubt or deny any of the miracles that Jesus did. They saw Jesus save others. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him raise the dead and so on. They never deny that these things happened. They acknowledge it here. He saved others. But they mock him because he cannot save himself. The assumption of the religious leaders and indeed the crowds that day was that Jesus would save himself if he could. I mean, why would you stay on the cross if you could come off it? Nobody would do that, would they? And if he would come off the cross, having been nailed there by these Roman soldiers, who, by the way, are experts at crucifixion and experts at killing people, wouldn't that be an awesome miracle for him to just come down from the cross and show that these things do not have power over him? They say, in verse 42, that they'd believe in him if this king and this son of God would come down from the cross. They, they would acknowledge him as king, acknowledge him as son of God, if he would just come down. 
Now, of course, they are only saying this because they don't believe for one second he will. And then in verse 43, we see them, again, the religious leaders who know the scriptures, quoting the scriptures again. Let me read you what they are quoting. Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you see how, how these words from King David are exactly the words that the religious leaders are hurling at Jesus? I don't believe for one second they don't know what they're doing or saying here. This mockery is lifted directly from this psalm. They're telling Jesus, if you are God's son as you claim to be, then God would rescue you. If you are the king of Israel and the son of God, prove it then. Prove it by coming down from the cross and showing your power that way. And I think again we see Jesus tempted here to come down. His purpose is that people would believe in him and not perish and have everlasting life. And here the religious leaders are saying, well, if you come down, we will believe in you. At this point, Jesus still has at his command, like he told Peter in the previous chapter, the legions of angels at his command. He could call and they would be there instantly to rescue him if he so wished. But he stays. And again, here is the irony. If Jesus is going to save others, he cannot save himself. Because he is dying for others. He is dying for our sins. The religious leaders say they will believe in him if he comes down from the cross. Christians believe in him because he stayed there. The Sanhedrin's mockery is the saint's confession. Many a truth is said in jest. Well, in verse 44, we see that the rebels alongside him hurled insults at him in the same way. That means they mocked him for the same things. So Jesus is humiliated by all of those around him. But it was for all of those kinds of people that Jesus stayed on the cross and died for. The violent and materialistic soldiers who were only interested in what they could get from him. The everyday passerby, the religious, and the rebellious. We see in the future people from each of these groups put their faith in Jesus and follow this king. In the book of Acts, we see people like the centurions. We see everyday people in Jerusalem on Pentecost passing by. We see chief priests. And we see rebels like Saul of Tarsus all coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you? Have you put your faith in this crucified king who brings access to God through his atoning sacrifice? I urge you to bow the knee now before you will be forced to at the judgment. But many of us here tonight are followers of Jesus. We believe in him. These mockeries are the very things we praise God for, aren't they? So how should we respond? Well, first of all, we need to confess these truths about Jesus and praise him and thank him for them every single day. Praise him for being the king who reigns the temple who brings access to God, and the Savior who died to save others, including us. And then, 
we need to, like Simon of Cyrene, follow in his footsteps, taking up our cross daily and following him. If you have questions uh, about who Jesus is, about what he has done, I encourage you to come and speak to us about those questions. We would love to tell you more about this amazing Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have. Well, our final song is one that we we haven't sung before, uh, but it really wonderfully tells the story of uh, Matthew's passion account. So we can use this song over uh, the next couple of weeks as we continue on in Matthew's gospel. Uh, We won't actually be in Matthew's gospel next week, um, but we will carry on the week after. Uh, this, This song helps us turn these words into a song of worship to our God. The song's called Jerusalem, and our musicians will now lead us in that. Such a thrill and loneliness Holding up the heavenly cross Sin walking in Jerusalem Humble Lord to tomb today death could not contain me once the servant 
on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a saviour. Amen. separate me 